the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Week is produced and distributed through a partnership with AV Nation and Rave Publications. For more information, go to ravepubs.com forward slash AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 26 for Friday, January 27th, 2012. Donald Trump's hair. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. It's time for AV Week, your weekly roundup of audiovisual news and information. I'm your host, Tim Albright. With us this week is George Tucker. George is the engineering coordinator at World Stage. Hello, sir. Hey, hello, everybody. And um, with us for the first time on, on the show, but this is not his first time uh, talking with AV Nation, is John Huntington. John is the professor of Interta- entertainment technology at City Tech and also the author of Control Systems for live entertainment. How are you, sir? Oh, very good. Thanks for having me on. And if you haven't caught it, please do. It's, it's a special that uh, it's a special that George did with John some months ago, talking about control systems and, li- and more specifically live control systems. But uh, John every year takes his class, and they do a one of the fanciest versions of a haunted house I think I've ever seen. So uh, if you go to his website, controlgeek.net, you still have that stuff up there, John. Yep, I uh, have a whole, uh, it's called the Gravesend Inn, and if you just, I actually have a tag for entries on that, because we've been doing it 10 years now, I guess, and sure. now it's all managed switches and VLANs and networks and stuff, so it's, uh, I, I still haven't actually written up the networking part, that's that's on my list probably for the next week here. Slacker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah if you, but if you go to his <laughs> website, his, his website is controlgeek.net, and uh, it's it's quite impressive. And if you're in the New York area next Halloween, I would check that out. So Definitely. Uh, today on AV Week, we're going to be talking about Pico projectors and eye projectors, projectors all around. Also, kind of delving into what in the world is 4K, really. Uh, Infocom and IATSE have geared up and teamed up for some uh, some certification stuff, and downloading physical objects from our buddies over at Pirate Bay. I don't believe in piracy. I think it's wrong, just in case the DOJ is listening. But but first... Uh, this came down actually kind of this morning. Uh, so I kind of throw the guy, threw the guys a curveball in, in case you're ever curious how we do this show. we I kind of I, I try to give people a couple of days notice and a couple of days to read all the stories because like today we have a stack of them. And so, you know, you have a couple of days to kind of chill out, relax, sip your coffee and read your stories, except this week. Uh, this morning, our buddy uh, Julie Jacobson over at CE Pro wrote an interesting piece. On Kaleidoscape, and so I'm, I'm throwing the guys a curveball today. Kaleidoscape and the DVD CCA group have kind of been at odds since 04. The DVD CCA have sued Kaleidoscape, and if you don't know what Kaleidoscape is, Kaleidoscape is, is a server. It's a media server. It's a high-end media server at that. And they allow you to rip in your DVDs, the DVDs that you have legally purchased from Best Buy or Amazon or wherever, you put it in their in their device and you rip it in, and then you can you know do to do to do with your remote control, bring it up 
as you wish, and the, the art's there and everything. It's a really, really cool system. Well, the DVD CCA, the DVD Copy Control Association, took issue with what they were doing. They said that, that they were breaking the license agreement that they that Kaleidoscape had with the DVD CCA. And a, a judge this month have has tentatively ruled in favor of the DVD CCA. In essence, telling Kaleidoscape, your business model is illegal. George, we'll start with you. Give me, first of all, your two cents on this initial ruling and kind of an overall, what does this mean for our industry? And because, you know, here's a, a good, you know, a good, it's a, it's a media server. So it's a, it's a content create, it's a content delivery device that a lot of high end residential and even some commercial applications are for. So what does this mean for the industry, both resi and professional? Well, I, it's not good, in my opinion. I mean, it's not the best thing that could have happened, but this has been going on for a long time. This is a couple of years in the process where the DVD CCA was saying, well, you broke this rule, and they went back saying, well, technically we didn't. So the DVD CCA came back with a new rule, which is the most inane rule I've ever heard, saying, yes, you've got fair use rights to do this, like we did in the old days of tape decks and stuff. But what you need to do is, yes, you can rip it, but you need to keep that physical medium, i.e. that DVD, in a carousel player that's part of the network so it's available to the system at all times. And my first thought on this when we talked about this originally was this is like b- b- Blazing Saddles and the governor sitting there <laughs> writing up his laws going, gentlemen, we got to protect our phony baloney jobs. Somebody give the governor harumph. And I know the law, the courts are saying that there's some legal basis for it. But, guys, you're trying to kill an industry. You're only going to delay it. It's not going to stop. Cut it out. But it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt installers. Like, I can't do that. I gotta, you have to spend $8,000 more for a proper system so I can store your media in a physical way in the system so we don't break the law. Now, real quickly, George, kind of give people, for the younger people listening, what was the whole, you know, the VCR ruling basically came down to, and please correct me, either of you, if I'm wrong, because you're, you're, you're purchasing a piece of physical media, that can and will break down over time. You have the right to make a copy of that, a backup of it. Not to give it to anybody, not to sell, not to distribute, but to save in case your original copy goes down. Is that right, roughly? Yeah, I mean, it was all based on, like, the fair use rulings. Yeah. Although, I think, John, you have far more um, knowledge on this than I do. Uh, yeah, and it's, and it's been so long, I don't remember exactly the details of that. But I think the other big issue in that, uh, years ago in that... Uh, VCR sort of tape decision was also that people had the right to time shift stuff, and that was a big deal because the networks were, of course, fighting against that. Um, and of course, now, I mean, that's something they sell, cable companies sell on your DVR. And I, I think this whole thing is just more of a like, just another ham handed and stupid move by a, you know, dinosaur industry that just doesn't get it. And I, it's not, of course, I think they should be able to protect their content, but I think through the DMCA and stuff like that. There's, you know, there's plenty of mechanisms to do that, and to beat up on consumers who want to, you know, watch their content. Uh, I think is just stupid. And I think well, you mentioned before, but I'll oh, go ahead. Is it really protecting the? I just want to pick out a point there. Is it really protecting the content producers, or is it the physical medium producers who are getting protected here? Bingo. From my understanding, it's the latter. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I we I just I'm reading this thing as we're talking now, but it does say that the MPAA. I think you're right because the MPAA is not involved in this. It's this 
DVD CCA, which is the con uh, sorry, where it's, it's listed in here, but it's the oh yeah, Content Copy Association, and obviously they're <laughs> they're working together, but um, but yeah, and that's and if that's the case, it's even stupider just protecting a, a physical media as you know a way to um, you know just to, it's a it's a dying area and people don't really care how it's delivered uh, as long as they can watch it, and I think well we yeah, it, it really is akin to go ahead. Oh, I just think we touched on this briefly, but the the whole recent thing with Louis C.K. where he shot his own comedy special and uh, put it online with no uh, copy protection at all, uh, any variety, um, and charged five dollars for it, and he made so much money, they ended up giving away you know tens of thousands of dollars to charity and giving everybody yeah. involved in his show a bonus and all this stuff. And obviously, he's an established artist, but uh, you know all that money went straight to him without going to you know, a Sony or, or some big studio in the way. So I think... John, uh, John, John, shh, don't tell them that. That's, that's right. <laughs> well, doesn't this go back, back to the, the... There's that theory by Kevin Kelly, the, the guy who started Whole Earth Magazine and um, was, a, was a managing editor of Wired for a long time, about yeah. something called A Thousand True Fans. Yeah. We talked about this on the social media show, that, you know what, we don't, you may not really need anymore. Like, the punks in the 80s and the alternative guys from Seattle show that independent labels can be there without having to need the mass distribution because the audience will come to it if they get enough notice about it. In the same way with the 1,000 True Fans, if you have a product, how many fans at how much price do you need to make a decent living? You don't need the in-between people. Not, not really. I mean, if you want to tour in Hong Kong and put, you know, big flamethrowers on your show, maybe you do, but otherwise you don't. So they're fighting a losing battle of saying trying to retain an old business model that's not going to last. It just isn't. Okay, so let, let's take that, that thought a, a bit further. So you, you don't need the flamethrowers. You may want them, and eventually you <laughs> might be able to get them. But if you are really in it for the art or for just creating your music and getting it out there or getting your content out there, I mean, take, take your, the social show or take this show. You know, we are <laughs> the, the epitome of a grassroots effort, you know, we, we don't have, you know, a big budget, we don't have anything like that, and so where, I guess my question is, where do guys, where does the next Louis C.K. get his outlet? Because like, like, like John said, Louis C.K. was an established artist. He had already been a part of the, the, the system. He had already been a part of the, of the corporate system. You know, he, he had had specials and, and stuff produced for him, and then he took, you know, the, the platform he already had and then said, hey, look, 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 look what I can do over here. Where does the next guy come up, though, who doesn't have that, that platform? Yeah, and I think, I think well, they're going to... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, talking over each other here. No, 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 go ahead, John. Oh, and I think in one way that I think that the, the next Louis C.K. will figure that out, uh, and I think uh, I listened to the Mark Maron's podcast, which I guess I can't say the name of on this, uh, say this show. <laughs> What's well, WTF is the, the uh, initial. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it, but there's hundreds of thousands of comics still out there hustling it out, and uh, you know that's the way the bulk of them make their living. Uh, just like musicians, I mean, which is great for us in the live performance businesses. You know, the record companies aren't really making the the money anymore, and they're not promoting the concerts, but um, but they're still out there because that's the way they can make money. And it, the people are still paying, I think, too much for, in some cases, but. I dug out my first concert ticket, which was uh, Led Zeppelin in 1977, and it was $7.50. So I think in, wow. in constant dollars, that's not the 300 it would cost if they, if, well, if, if John Bonham was reincarnated and they went on tour. So 
because you know they'd be charging enormous amounts of fees. And the difference is back then, it was a promotional event for the record company, and now it's that's the way they make money. So, and then also, like you said, there's the thousand fans things, and there's hundreds of uh, thousands of uh, you know independent artists out there that they're not getting rich, but they're making a living, and they they go out on tour, and it's a rough you know it's a rough business, but that's the nature of of that whole thing. But I think well, the other thing we see the- now. Oh, just one other quick point before I forget, but the other thing we see now is that a lot of big events that we see like here in New York are, are and I'm sure uh, George, you know all about this, but they're sponsored by, you know, some company because that's the way they can gauge their consumers. So they've just found another way, you know, the old print ad or whatever isn't working for them anymore. So they go hire a band or sponsor a film festival or put a car on the side of a building or something like that, which is all great because people still want to be engaged you know with other people no matter what and that's not going to change you know and, and yeah that that that's that is true uh, you asked earlier though um tim where the young or the un um and, and the not famous going to get this kind of um, yeah. ability to do this right well here's my answer is that the the millennials they're already in the system they're already doing it they have certain fan base which may be just their friends but the transition or the expansion of that is not exponential exponential for them it's just a growth it's an evolution they're already making content they're already posting content they're already getting people to see their stuff it just becomes when do you translate it into a real performance where people will come to see you live then want to pay a very small amount to see more of it you know somebody will right. be free bands have done this so well, there's no real at- transition for them and the the big companies and the big the big uh, artists are still always going to be there. If you look at like Lady Gaga, just Google what's her real name, Stephanie DiDonato or something like that. Yeah. Just Google that, and you can find her singing at the Bitter End here in New York. Maybe seven eight years ago, it's just her and a piano and some band, you know. So the so she was putting this stuff up on YouTube, and then now she's uh, you know the probably the best known name in the in the world right now. So they people will figure this stuff out, and I think the system. I never worry about trying to protect those kind of things because I think it kind of not trying but not trying to protect intellectual property as somebody I see my book popping up online in PDF format once in a while which is really annoying but the uh, of course people have a right to to go after that and that but the DMCA is already there and it's uh, that structure is already in place so I think it'll work out I mean, you know I think this it, it's basically sort of a reflection of the culture and the system and the system will generate the the new solution to the problem yeah, I think what we're doing is we're, we're, I said this about SOPA and about ACTA that's coming up and all that stuff is that really what these guys are trying to do is fix a cut on the finger by cutting off the hand. Oh, my God, I cut my finger. Chop off the hand. It's just a wrong-headed. Yes, there's a problem. It's not as significant as you say. Yes, your bottom line as a CEO's salary might get a little bit of a hit because your stockholders are upset. But you're doing it wrong. It's just – it's yeah. – stop. When, and the great thing the I think The highways were not built – Sorry. Oh, I'd say the great thing about the whole – SOPA PIPA thing is that the, I think the internet uh, has now proven itself to be more powerful than the MPAA. And you see Chris Dodd, you know, former senator up there at the MPA, just spouting nonsense on this issue. And again, I don't uh, disagree with the intent of it at all. It's just that it gets very technical. But the the whole idea of, you know, hiding things in the DNS and basically not having any due process at all and just taking down a site just because some corporation says it's come down, I think that's what people are objecting to. I mean, nobody objects to an artist or a studio, and I can't say nobody, but most rational people I don't think object to an artist or a studio trying to protect their, their art and their content, but you've got to come out about it 
better way than that. And then also, it seems like they don't need it anyway. If they can take down Mega Upload, then what do they need SOPA for? Yeah. Well, what's happening with ACTA? 22 countries have, have uh, certified it. And if, we're not, if you don't know what ACTA is, it's a sort of global internet agreement, sort of UN-based, that will actually provide censorship. So what it's basically doing is it's the next step in not just dictatorships, but corporate dictatorships looking to dictate to you what you can get and where, not just fair use. Like, I want my fair use. I want to be able to store it and get it anywhere. You give me that ability to get it on any device, anywhere, and I'll stop protesting about you cutting off the pipe. But if you force me to have one type of medium, you're not going to win. You're just not going to win. Even with ACTA, there's going to be ways around it. It'll be this false, exactly. worthless yeah. law. That will only serve to benefit dictatorships, both either corporate or governmental. When, and every form of copy protection ever invented has been defeated. I, I say that with, with no basis and no, no supporting evidence. <laughs> but they've all been defeated one way or another, and that's always going to happen. And, but I still think the vast majority of people, if you give it to them in a convenient format at a reasonable price, they're going to buy it. You know? yeah. I, I think that's I – mean, and I think Louis C.K. proved that. Sure, some people stole it. And Arcade Fire did it before, right? They, they had that album. That they, yeah. Well, not, not but, just Louis C.K. proved it. I mean, Steve Jobs 10 years ago proved it. I mean, he, he got on stage and said, look, you know, piracy is a, pro- is a problem. Because at that time, you had, you had you know, LimeWare and you had Mozilla and you had uh, – right. well, not Mozilla, but you had Napster and, and all, the, all the different things. And he said, you know what? I, I think genuinely people are good and they want to pay for their content. Now, he may have been a, a little Pollyanna about it. But still, he said, look, here is a legal way to get your stuff in a digital format. Now, he only did it with, with, the, with the recording artist, which, you know, some, some would say was he, he was short-sighted in that point because he never really got around to doing, doing it in the way that he did with, with music. He never got around to doing it with the, with the MPAA. And I think he, he pro- had he lived longer, he probably would have. Well, yeah, and it's interesting, yeah, I but I mean, they, they did start with a whole lot of DRM on their stuff, and that's why I never bought anything on iTunes back in the day. And then when, as soon as Amazon came out with uh, DRM-free music, that's when I started buying everything online rather than buying the CD uh, and ripping it. So it's, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's interesting. But he started out with a very restrictive, you know, I still have but some But it was a way, though. It was a way to do it oh, other, yeah, other yeah, than illegally. Absolutely. Yeah, and it was 99 cents yeah. for a song. And they let people buy the song. And everybody, oh, it's the end of everything. Mm-hmm. You know? But people are still making money. It's, I think we've seen the end of everything many, many times, even in my life. So I don't, yeah, and I don't <laughs> want to get into this too much. because I'll say this much about, about Pippa and, and, and Sopa. One of the biggest complaints from Chris Dodd, and, and I don't care what he calls himself. He's a freaking lobbyist. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. he, uh, he goes, you know what? We're losing money and we're losing jobs. And he, he, he points to Avatar, which is funny. He points to Avatar because Avatar was one of, the, one of the most downloaded and most file-shared movies of all time. It was also one of the most highest-grossing movies yeah, of exactly. all time. Yeah. So what's your complaint? Well, right, and then the other thing is just the, the variance of experience. I mean, that's why movie theaters still exist because there's no reason for a movie theater to exist anymore, right? You can have a much better technical experience at home but that's not what it's about i would take People issue with that though because uh real quickly i, I went to see uh, mission impossible the latest one <laughs> at the imax i don't uh-huh. have an imax at my house right i don't have the money to have an imax at my house one of the best visual movies i have seen in a very long time 
There right, was, right. But that's, but yeah, but they're selling something there, particularly that you cannot get at home. And exactly. I think that's, that's exactly. But I think, but for other than, and it, I, the ironic thing is you picked that movie because I saw that in my hometown uh, movie theater over the holidays when I was visiting my father. And it was the worst experience I ever had in a movie theater because it was literally 35-millimeter <laughs> film that I don't think they've cleaned the projector since 1978. Oh, jeez. Uh, and it was, they literally had the, the, and being an old projectionist, I knew what the guy had to do, but so much dirt got into the, uh, the audio head and the, and the projector, they had to stop the thing twice, go clean it only after I complained. But half the audience sat there, and it was literally unintelligible, you know, for half of it. And it was horrendous, but still, uh, that's the only option these people have to see this movie in the small town where I grew up. So they're still out there going to see it. So it's <laughs> that's ironic because the little, yeah. little the little DLP logo comes up, and I go, "Oh, it's DLP," and my wife's like, "What?" Like, yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's the it's the mirrors, honey. Well, and it's funny because I actually wanted to go see that movie again in a, in a much better theater because I felt like, yeah, it was it was horrendous. You definitely should. Yeah. There are certain scenes of that movie, not to ruin it for anybody, but there are certain scenes of that movie that make it worth the, the extra two or three bucks I think I paid for for the IMAX. So. Oh, definitely. Although, and, and, well, I, I can get on a whole rant about IMAX, but the I think the... the uh, but were they, was it? Was it's not actually IMAX film that you're watching, and that was it. Was it? I think it's video projection. Oh, you said it's DLP. It's DLP, yeah. Okay. So it's not so it's just a big but, screen. But it's a big probably... screen. But but there there were certain scenes apparently that were shot on IMAX film. Oh yeah, quite yeah. I'm sure there were. Well, I don't know. Was that movie was shot on film? But the well, uh, it was shot I, with the with the widescreen thing. So right, definitely shot with a high resolution, higher resolution than most people are going to see it in. Yeah. All right, this is this has been fun. You're listening to AV Week with uh, John Huntington and and George Tucker. Uh, the New York Times, which is not a publication we typically go for here at the at the uh, old AV Week, not because there's anything, there's anything wrong with them. They did, they typically don't write about AV stuff. They wrote a piece about the security of video conferencing, and real quickly, we'll, we'll kind of synopsize it here, uh, if that's a word. Uh, Mike uh, Tuchin and H.D. Moore of Rapid7, it's, it's a security company in Boston, they went around and hacked a number of video conferences, conferencing systems around the country. And they go on to say, you know, the, this guy, you know, he was able to control the camera and zoom in and see the grain of the grain of the uh, the wood in the in the conference table. One one conference room they did, they hacked, they pan the camera around to the window and got to zoom across the street and watch the bushes. This is becoming, this, this is, I guess, this is the, the, uh, the maturing of, of video conferencing systems where now, you know, 10 years ago they were running on ISDN lines and so you really couldn't unless you had some, some high-tech equipment to hack. Now they're running over IPs. And so they're open in general to the, the open web. John, is this, is this a... A downside to securities to video conferencing systems, or is this just, hey guys, here's a security flaw. Can you go fix it now? Well, I, I think it's actually a market for uh, AV professionals to get in there, and because I, I would bet that this is uh, you know just the same old default passwords and open things that, and even <laughs> even said in the uh, in the article that basically uh, I've forgotten which system it was, but it's basically configured by default to. Uh, to accept incoming calls without any sort of challenge or anything. Yes. And I'm sure that'll be closed after this article came out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think it's it's just anytime these things, you take a complex system and then they just have some 
you know, they, uh, it's, I don't know. I think some of the, the venture capitalists and things like that that they talk about in the article really have no excuse because they should have full-time AV IT people there, you know, dealing with this stuff. And if, I'm sure they would have thought about it. But I, I'm feeling they were talking about finding thousands of them. I'm sure a lot of them are a small, you know, law firm or company somewhere that just gets this thing out of the box and plugs it in and doesn't think twice about it. But see, even those guys should know better than that because, you know, we, uh, there's a big law firm here in St. Louis called Brian Cave, and they have a number of different uh, offices around the country. They use VC a lot when it comes to depositions and it comes to interviewing people and stuff like that. That's a huge legal issue. Yeah. Again, more more job opportunities for us, I think. In the, the um I don't know if it's that it works that interesting, but it's definitely it's good for it's good for the expertise in our industry. But I think there's always going to be. Uh, do you guys know uh, Kevin Mitnick? Yes. Yeah, he he just had a book came out. I've heard him speak at the hacker conferences before, but uh, he's a, a guy who was chased by the FBI and stuff and the Secret Service. And it, hilarious stories because one of them, he actually literally just outran the agent. So that's how he got away. But he, most of I me, mean, he's a guy's very, very sharp. He's on Twitter, but he has a, a great book. I think it's called Ghosts in the Wires. It just came out in the last few months. Um, but the real threat, I think, to any of these things is the vast majority of his exploits were really, and he was. When you said ISDN lines are secure, you're absolutely right, way more secure than anything on the public Internet. But those are, even those, he was able to get inside most phone companies, mostly through social engineering. So I think the, the real key is a more, you know, I have a feeling this uh, security consultant, this guy's business went up 8,000% after oh, yeah. this uh, article came out. So they always take these a little bit of a grain of salt. But it's sort of like no, no big news to me that, that people would leave systems open. Um, but I think the even bigger threat would be somebody showing up in a FedEx uniform at the front desk. You know, that guy is more of a threat than any anybody sitting at home, you know, hacking into your system. That's exactly the kind of thought I had, John, especially the social engineering. My first thought when I read this is if, you, if we've done if any if you've been someone who's done teleconferencing systems, especially for corporate, you've known this forever. You know, you've seen, oh, let me find a test line. Oh, what's that? It's not the test line, but oh, hey, it's somebody's boardroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been known for years. Yeah, so exactly. I blame both the install base and the manufacturing for not stressing security enough. Um, I have a friend whose main job, he just fell into it, was doing depositions, and his main job is securing video conferencing systems for depositions. Right. That's his job. He goes in, he assesses what's going on, he goes, here you go, and he charges a boatload for it. It's a great thing he fell into. And he become the default expert because no one else was doing it and everyone ignored it um but you know this brings me back to the thing if you're not paying attention to it i know it's technical but it's program or be programmed people with the social engineering if you're not aware of what can possibly happen and please think about it for a minute someone can social engineer you easily just like the mitnick thing now and for those who didn't know him he's a hacker he wound up starting making blue boxes and green boxes with those things that uh, used to fool pay phones into thinking you dropped a coin so you'd get a free call um, you know, but they were chasing him for a number of reasons, but the main reason wasn't that he broke into somebody's computer, but that he was selling the parts for these boxes, which is what Steve Jobs did with Wozniak before they started <laughs> yeah. Apple. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, I wrote a blog post on it a couple of years ago, you know, saying, you know, he's lost his mojo. He, you know, don't you remember when you were a teenage anarchist there, Mr. Jobs? Because you were. You know, well, Woz still was, is. It's probably more Wozniak than Jobs, I think, the... In that well, case, but Jobs yeah. was making them and selling them. Jobs actually sold those. Things. Oh, sure, yeah, he was always. He, he wasn't arrogant. I mean, he he was he was a, a beatnik. He was he was a hippie. He was, um, you know, the whole he, he was the whole counterculture of of San Francisco at the time of the, of the Silicon Valley. Yeah, 
but I think even if you read the early days, you know, that stuff, I mean, he was definitely a salesman from day one. And I think that was the whole, and I, you know, Wozniak, I've heard him speak too. And you hear him like getting excited about uh, how he did the video on the Apple II. I mean, it was a really cool hack on the chip and stuff. I don't think you ever heard Jobs talking about that. He was always about how much he's going to sell and how much he's going to make. Not that, I mean, it's certainly a valuable partnership, but I think yeah. uh, it, people attribute uh, a lot of stuff to him. And I think any, everybody, if you're in New York, uh, Mike Daisy's show is coming back called The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs. And he was on This American Life in the last month. They're really, And Daisy's sort of the ultimate Apple fanboy and ended up going to China to see how iPhones are manufactured and stuff. And he's an, I've been a fan of his for probably 10 years. But uh, that's coming back to the public theater in New York. And uh, But if you listen, just look on This American Life and look for Mike Daisy. He actually cut out all the part about Steve Jobs for a time. He just focused on the Chinese manufacturing part. But anybody that's an uh, Apple fan should see this show. Hmm. Yeah, Very good. I agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up, guys. Way from... off topic now. So. No, that's all right. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'll, I'll talk about Apple all day long. So. That's right. Uh, from Man, I'm just from happy to have somebody who can talk. And John, I'm just happy someone on the show who can talk as tangentially as I do, more so. So thank you. <laughs> That's right. And, and Georgia's <laughs> wife appreciates it too. So <laughs> from CE Pro, uh, Hitachi is going to stop uh, making TVs, and this kind of comes on the on the heels of Sony getting out of the LCD business with their partnership with Samsung. And it, not really, honestly, I don't know what Sony's doing right now because. They said, hey, we're not doing OLED and we're not doing LCDs anymore. But, hey, here's this pretty thing called called Crystal, which some industry people have said is OLED. It's just Sony being Sony and saying, hey, it's not really. It's it's called Crystal because it's what we said. So, uh, but it sounds like Crystal meth. The <laughs> <laughs> first thing I thought. Okay. You know what? The first thing I thought was Crystal Pepsi. But that's a whole weird <laughs> 20-year-old uh, reference. So. There's um, probably more crystal meth in your area than crystal Pepsi, I would imagine. I, I would imagine, yes. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I think Missouri is still the the meth capital of the, of yeah. the country. So yeah, oh, just on the go other watch side. Uh, Winter's Bone, another amazing movie about that. Really depressing, but it's all about the crystal meth trade down in southern Missouri. Lovely. So bring us down, John. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Uh, no, but George, here's here's a question for you. I mean, and and this also comes off the heels of the the the. Uh, the lawsuit that not just Hitachi but other LCD manufacturers settled saying, yeah, we kind of did some price fixing and yeah, we kind of colluded and said we're not going to do LCDs for any less than this. So that so so price fixing agreement and Sony getting out of LCDs and now Hitachi's getting out of LCDs. What kind of what's going on here? Well, I think, as you said, they did it to themselves. Uh, we've talked about on these shows about the old days of flat panels were a profit center for installers because no one was doing it. You couldn't really get a flat panel. And then all the manufacturers decided that they wanted to get a mass market appeal and they sold them for less, sometimes losing money. And then when they figured out, hey, we're losing too much money, they started to collude with each other to keep prices at least high to make some bit of a profit. But guess what? Your consumers didn't want to go for that. You got them used to that price. So you did it to yourselves, boys. You colluded. You put the price way too low, grabbing for the greed to see if you can get market share and corner the market. And now you're getting out of it because you lost money on it. Yeah. Do we have to go back to uh, Adam Smith? This is basic economics, people, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, come on. And what may be beneficial to the ones who remain, obviously, is the law of supply and demand. Fewer manufacturers making it. There's still demand for flat panels because it's what we've been now sort of trained to want and have and damn we do want them 
the prices will probably go up, and there'll be a healthy profit for the companies who remain. Again, classic Adam Smith. <laughs> yeah. okay. so, so, John, is this more LCD, or is or is this is this more flat panels in general, or is this just about LCDs because of the OLEDs coming out and, and everything, and, and LED becoming more and more prevalent? Yeah, I honestly haven't followed the industry that closely, but it just I, I would probably agree with what George is saying. It just seems like classic supply and demand stuff to me, because despite price fixing and fines, and I just was reading the the link off the page there. It's interesting that the uh, payments in that fine for the price fixing, Samsung was two hundred forty million dollars, and Hitachi is thirty nine million. So that I have a feeling that's based on market size. So it shows you that they were like a smallish player in that market anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it seems like if they, but if there was money to be made, if the, then they, I, whatever the fines, I'm sure they would still be in the business. Yeah, I would assume. As and I don't think this is an OLED or anything like that yet, because exactly. most people are keeping their monitors and televisions longer. So exactly, just like Blu-ray, it has some impact, but it's not a huge market Blu-ray anymore. I mean, they fought it out too long. You can't make people right. transition this quickly. That's not the reason. I'm sorry, it can't be. Well, it's funny. I bought a Blu-ray player because it actually had the Netflix streaming built in. That was exactly. So it's like, <laughs> you know, you know what's funny about that? I was talking to, with with my buddy Kevin Iselli. Uh, he works for Crestron. He made the comment. He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "I've got like nine devices that that does Netflix," and it, that's true. Right. Because honestly, I mean, anymore, I mean, I have a, a Wii that has Netflix. I have an Xbox that have, has Netflix. Most Blu-rays anymore that have Netflix. A lot of TVs, the apps built right. in, they're going to have it. I mean, it, it's kind of silly how many different devices you can get Netflix on. But it, it, most of those are better than than what I used to do is like plugging the laptop in and all that stuff. Oh yeah. So. yeah. Well, you know, but those services still have a, a, a fault that I've been finding lately. Um, my kids, we watched over the, the, the Christmas holiday, uh, AMC had the Marx Brothers marathons on. Mm. My, two, my four- and six-year-old have been addicted to the Marx Brothers now. They love hmm. Duck Soup. We can watch that old movie, Dad. Guess what? I can't find it anywhere. It's not on Netflix. Yeah. It's not on uh, any of the other online services, so I still need to find the physical medium. Yeah. So we're, we're dropping the ball somewhere on this. I know this is really transcendental, but... You know, if you're going to prevent me from getting it, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's not there because there's some licensing agreement that nobody can get access to. I don't know. Yeah, but, but you should be able but, to serve it to me. But you would pay $2 for that or something. Yeah. Or whatever. Definitely. You know, without having to go buy Absolutely. the physical CD. And I think that all that stuff with the physical DVDs and all that is really just about rights and marketing and rights issues. It has nothing to do with, you know, there, there's no rational, uh, no, you know, content delivery reason not to have it in every format. It's just about people. You know, big studios trying to ham-handedly protect their content. Well, maybe not, it's not just that either. It's making sure that because they've got contracts that are that are fifty years old. I mean, I, I'm not sure, sure you know how far back some of this revenue share goes. But if you've got Tom Cruise from Risky Business, and you know if you sell a DVD, he's going to get you know a dollar or two bucks from that. And wh- what does that look like when you sell it online? You know, what does that look like? when you offer it up to streaming. And so some of this, they're handcuffed and they're handicapped based on their own past <laughs> contracts. Exactly, know? yeah. And so maybe it's time that they, as an industry, go, okay, guys, let's wholesale look at all of this old stuff. You know, um, because I, 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 I agree with George, give it to me in, in a way that I want to consume it. And, and by and large, they have done that to a point. But there are also those things, like the old movies, like some of the stuff, that you want to get at that that's just not available for whatever reason. And so maybe they need to go back to their agreements and say, how do we make this work? 
you know, Tom Cruise, how do we make this work or whoever, you know? Well, I think the, the interesting thing, I think that we're, you know, we're seeing as a consumer, I think we're seeing increasing fragmentation. And I think that's not going to stop anytime soon because you're going to get this from here and that from there and that yeah. from there. But as long as you can get it all on one thing, then, and I think what's interesting in terms of that is that I think right now the sort of PC has always been the sort of last resort. Like you can always get on that. It's, or, you know, PC or Mac or whatever. It's always more or less an open platform, a browser or whatever. Um, but what's really interesting, uh, I think it was Cory Doctorow just did a talk called the, the End of the General Purpose PC, uh, which was very interesting because talking about how everything's a device now. And if it's, you know, if it's an Apple device, then it's controlled by them and they limit what can be on it and if it's this and that. But, you know, right now the Mac or PC desktop is still pretty much open. And he was he had a fascinating thing to read. It's on uh, Boing Boing, I think, from, uh, I don't know, about a month ago. But it's it's interesting to see where all that's heading. Love Cory Doctorow. So mm-hmm. funny you you say that, and it's a nice transition into our next story uh, from System Contractor uh, News. Epson has introduced it's an it's a free app called iProjection, and the reason I say it's a good it's a good transition because this allows you to take what's on your iPad or your iPhone or your iTouch, iPod Touch, and shoot it to an Epson projector that has wireless and stuff like that. So if you've got Hulu or if you have a PowerPoint presentation or whatever's on your iPad, you can send up to the projector. Now, John, you and I are education guys. I can imagine a world not too far from here where as an instructor, you are walking around the the classroom and you walk in with your iPad and you start the presentation, you turn on the projector and there it is, you know, or you want to take them to YouTube or you want to take them to Hulu or whatever else it is that's on your iPad, and show it to them there. And there's nothing on here that says, in the, at least in the article, that talks about content production, so I don't know if it, if it handles that or not. My assumption is that it does, but again, we all know what happens when I assume things. Things blow up. So um, do, you, do you see this as, as a viable solution to what you were talking about? You know, you've got all these disparate things this 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 this, these different ways that we can get content if we use something like the ipad or whatever tablet to kind of coagulate them together and then shoot them to our displays does that solve the problem yeah i think um it's interesting because reading that article the um it says the app is compatible with word excel powerpoint keynote pdf jpeg and png all of those are are um more still oriented but also uh, dropbox and, and gmail and stuff yeah but that doesn't it doesn't i think i'm looking through some reading through some critically reading some some uh press release ease here and i yeah. it seems to me i'm not sure if this thing does video okay you know actual movie you know multi you know it does stills which is great because powerpoint mostly or excel i use powerpoint in my classes and stuff like that and certainly look at, at images it'd be great but um i don't know it's I don't know. Again, for me, I'm an Android guy, so being limited to Apple. Uh, and on, at my school, we can't get any handheld devices even on the network. So, I mean, that wow. that's a bigger problem than, than uh, getting onto the content. Is that a network but, issue or administration issue? Oh, it's administration. They have a really restrictive um, network access control, and they have to buy licenses for uh, every device that goes on the network. And they haven't bought any for they're, – they're just now doing iPads, but um, – so yeah, it's interesting. I think it's cool stuff, but I, and it needs, I have a feeling it's it's 
things that get a little too proprietary for me end up being less less interesting. Um, and it's an Epson thing, and it works with Apple products, and it works with these like eight things. So if you use those eight things, it's great. But I don't know that to me it's not. I, if I can, I I could bring my laptop in now and run a VGA cable to the projector, and it doesn't seem to offer me much beyond that, other than a little bit of convenience, and then a lot of headache of. Uh, of uh, I think any time you put something on a radio link, you're asking for trouble. So, granted, any any time you you do wireless over wire, there are there are drawbacks to that. So, George, is this what what do you think about this product where you where you can wirelessly send it up to up to a projector? Well, I mean, guys have been doing it for a little while now. I mean, there's been some of that established in from your laptop. You could get buy a dongle and do it with with some of these guys. But I'd like to see it video. As John said, right. um, I also didn't see Google Docs or Google, you know, that kind of stuff, which I use a lot of. So if I have my presentation, I want to do it from there. Why not? You guys can do it, please. It sounds interesting, but it sounds very limited. Um, I know the education guys for us, uh, a PowerPoint. That would work, sure. But are you really using that much PowerPoint? I said, John, you said you use it occasionally, but I don't know how often you use it. Um, no, I use it. Obviously. Yeah, I use it pretty much in every class, if nothing else, just as an outline yeah, for me. Right. I think... PowerPoint gets a bad name because people use it wrong, but I don't think, you know, and this is something I think uh, comes across almost everything that we do, but people, there's lots of research showing that people learn in different ways, and some people are visual learners, some are auditory, and that's true whether you're in a classroom or a corporate presentation, so I think, uh, I know I like, uh, I've been to presentations, unless it's a really amazing speaker, somebody like Mike Daisy, who I just uh, mentioned, uh, having that visual information up there for me is very helpful because I tested myself, you know, 10 years ago and it turns out I'm a read-write learner. So that's, I have to mm. see it in order to remember it. Even though I'm a sound guy, you would think it would be auditory. The same <laughs> way I, you know. So I think, so anyway, yeah, PowerPoint, I use every class, but the, the key is just don't use it badly. You know, don't read every slide, all the basic things like that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, and, and to me, I just put it up there and then it's a reminder. It's like, the outline that I would use plus some, you know, visual aids and I just mm. give it to them visually instead of, um, I, and I, when I, whenever I do something like that, I need, I need an outline to make sure I don't forget things. So, yeah. And I'm yeah, no, sort of I, the same way. I agree. I mean, I just, I, I'm doing this week, Thursday and Friday, I just did ethernet, basic ethernet for some of the shop guys. Cause you know, we got lots of testers here and guys who, you know, fix gear, but they don't always understand how to do the uh, networking and ethernet stuff. So yes, I did do my Google presentation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I could see that, I guess, if I, if I had it on a wireless iPad, it would work. I don't know so much about an iPhone. It just seems like, an, you know, let's include that. Well, yeah, but. I, but I think what it was is the, the press release said something like all iOS devices, at least up to at least starting at 4.2 or something. So Yeah. But, but I, I can see if you're, if you're a salesman or something and you have one presentation you give over and over every day, then a solution like that would be pretty cool. You roll in with your iPhone and a little Epson projector and, and you're way you go. And it's easy to carry and... Um, so, yeah, I don't know an education market, but it certainly seems to be a market for it. All righty. Well, you're listening to AV Week. That's John Huntington. He is from the uh, Entertainment Technology. Uh, he's professor of entertainment technology at City Tech in New York and also George Tucker uh, with the World Stage. Coming up, we're going to talk about 4K, Infocom, and IATSE and getting physical things downloaded at Pirate Bay. I'm going to let George do that one. So, <laughs> But first, uh, it's time for the AV Week Job of the Week. Brought to you by Rave Pubs, ravepubs.com forward slash avjobs, ravepubs.com forward slash avjobs. This is a uh, Western Area Sales Director 
for RGB Spectrum. Go to RGB.com to uh, take a look at what the qualifications are or to uh, to give give them your resume. Go to RGB.com or send your resume to HR at RGB.com. Gentlemen, uh, there's something that has come by, and I know George and I, I don't, John, I don't know your feelings on 3D. Uh, no. but, but George and I hate it. <laughs> Let's just start there. Let's not pull you, any punches sorry, you here. Cut a, George and you, what was it? We hate you. it. Yeah, I'm with you. We don't like 3D. It is of the devil. Um, it, and have you seen, I don't know if you guys mentioned it, uh, but the, the best, uh, I'm just giving links today, the random things, but the best treatise on why it doesn't work that I've seen is by Walter Murch. Have you seen that? Uh-uh. Uh, Walter Murch is a. He was the uh, sound editor on Apocalypse Now, and then he was also the film editor, sort of like co-film editor. And then he did the uh, the Redux, and then all, a whole bunch of Coppola films. But brilliant, brilliant film editor, and he he's written several books on on uh, editing and uh, that type of thing for the general public, which is great. But anyway, he if you search uh, Roger Ebert and Walter Murch, Walter Murch sent Roger Ebert, who's also a hater of 3D, uh, an email. And uh, uh, about why it doesn't work for a variety of reasons, and uh, Ebert reprinted it, and I think he's dead on. And the, the key reason is just that you're, it's tiring because from an evolutionary basis, our eyes are not used to converging at a place where they're, and they're focused at a different plane. Mm-hmm. So if you're focused at a screen 10 feet away, but your brain is converged on a virtual point 100 feet away, then that's sort of draining. And Merch goes through all that whole thing, and it's really great. So, yeah, I don't... I, it, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, I think it's a fad and kind of it's, it'll, it'll always be around. It has been it's been around forever. It never really went away. But as a mass market thing, it's not I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And I find it annoying mostly. Well, it's kind of ebbed and flowed since what was it, the 20s or 30s. So, yeah, um, well, here's but it's here. certainly been pitched as the ultimate solution for everything at least a yes. you know, hundred times. And that's never come true. Well, here, here, and it would have. The, the, here is the was. death of, of 3D. I'll say that just to be honry. Uh, <laughs> but it's not not really. But here is the next big thing. How about that? It's called 4K. And it, it, to give you guys kind of a, of a, a, a basis or, or kind of a something to wrap your brain around this. Standard definition television is 720 by 480, right? Is that roughly right? The resolution oh, okay. for 4K is 4096 by 2160. 720 to 4096. That's a big picture. And it kind of, here, here's the other thing that, that it does. It's, I mean, HD is, is 1920 by 1080. It's, it's full HD. So it's even bigger than that. It's, it's not quite. It's three times as big as that. So here is, to me at least, the next big thing. My issue, though, and George, we'll start with you. Just like 3D... There is no content. So why on earth are, are are they just going to continue to do this? Here's a display. Now go make some content for it. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds cool, and I like the movie idea, uh, but in the article they even mentioned how the movie, like, okay, there was one movie, but there was no theaters that could do it. Yeah. Uh, yes, is progress good? Should we push forward to be better and better? Yes, but it seems that they came, are coming closer and closer in development cycles, and there's no chance to catch up. So are we looking at just working in niche markets and dreaming, and then it'll trickle down in 20 years to us? Okay. I mean, HD took, what, almost 10 years for it to really take hold, yeah. and that was by force, really. 
I mean, if they didn't enforce that whole HD and DTV thing, we might still be having two markets, right? HD would be for the special people and you do the, the movies and, you know, this. I, I think it's a great opportunity if some of it catches off for installers, for market, for some kind of economic, uh, g- generating some more economic activity. But um, will it come anytime soon? I don't know. I think maybe we're future casting on this. It looks cool, but my biggest thing with it, though, is uh, the article had two things that I really loved. One, it had a name, as they call it, what, Quad? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know me, I love to use quad as sort of a... Quad uh, HD. Uh, yes. Um, okay, and I guess most people are saying, well, let's not use that. It has a bad sort of association. Although I thought those quad albums were pretty cool. Um, <laughs> oh, and it's the only geez. article I've seen the word the use of boffin. <laughs> Did anyone else catch that? No, I didn't catch that. It uses the word boffin. Uh, I thought um, that was pretty cool. And that's what I got out of the article. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to start some new stuff. <laughs> John, is this something because you do a lot of live stage work? Is this is, is this where where we'll see it first? Is in the live environment? Because I remember oh, twenty yeah. years ago, uh, the zoo tours, zoo TV with U two. That was the first time I ever saw, you know, really live video or staging take place, and that was in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, and I think the. Um I don't know. I think as a display format, it's uh, sorry, as a consumer format, I think it's not going to go anywhere. And I think we've seen this movie over and over and over and over that, that, um, you know, when there's, unless there's a really compelling dramatic shift from even, and I think you look at something like from SD TV up to HD TV, it was like sports and stuff like that is where it really started catching on. Mm-hmm. But I think in the, in, uh, as a consumer format, I don't think it's going anywhere, but as an acquisition format, I think it's important. And, uh, for because there's a lot of reasons to acquire things at, at very high resolutions and quality, even if they're being displayed at lower quality, because once you edit it and stuff. And uh, I'm still like uh, another person. I seem to be every every story I'm seeing to be to go read this other one. Maybe we should put some links up. Okay, but, we can uh, do that. Uh, Mark Shubin. George yeah. must know Mark Shubin. Uh, yeah, I know yeah, Mark Shubin. Oh yeah. So just Google him and and 4K, and he has a great piece on why it's good for some things and it goes back to the history from 1920 and all this stuff about i think H- hdtv i was looking at it this morning and i think it goes back to 1923 or something like that and it said that hdtv had to be 200 lines or more or something like that um <laughs> but then i think the other thing is what what we saw as a live event i think always has to be well and far and above this the, the standard watch out rig that or uh, uh, a hypnotizer or whatever that the George's shop would put out would be running way above this resolution or, or could be running way above this resolution on a, uh, you know, uh, everyday basis. And um, my friend Jonathan Dean's a sound designer, you know, would, would talk to people, ask him about 5.1 sound. And if you go see some of the Cirque du Soleil shows, you're seeing like 400.24 sound or something like that. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, so when you get into the this sort of, live big live shows that we do i mean all this stuff is kind of uh it's not that it's not that interesting i mean but again as a to acquire in that format i think is good um and then but as a consumer format i mean the thing is you look at the audio market the number of things they came out with super high resolution whatever they've died back to digital compact cassette i don't know if anybody remembers that one oh, yeah and then dat those are both made uh, as uh consumer formats and they both bomb and became a sort of niche professional format. So something like that could happen with this. But, um, but yeah, you can, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
it, there's niche applications for it, but as a wide mass market product, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Okay. Doesn't mean a rich lawyer won't buy that big screen. You know? Well, that's true. For, and then uh, he'll for the show, big game. He'll show, you know, four by three uh, standard definition content <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. his, his slides from Niagara Falls. So. But it's and, big. And it'll be stretched in the wrong aspect ratio. And he'll look like 10 pounds heavier. Or worse, right. his wife will look 10 pounds heavier. That's so. right. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of the problem, though, is that with the 4K, they said it needs a bigger display, right? Yeah. It needs to be a bigger display to really work well. You're still increasing you the, the size. Well, that's what... For the home. Yeah, huh? Shubin, Shubin had a uh, thing on his blog talking about this where to get an adequate 4K display uh, with the angle resolution of your eye and so on, I, and I'm terrible at remembering numbers, but I think you need at least like a nine-foot-tall ceiling just to fit the display to make it have any real worth. Yeah. So in a movie theater or something like that, sure, but uh, the home, uh, Donald Trump can buy one. Yeah, Donald Trump could buy two of them, so... Yeah. <laughs> One for each wife or whatever. So, uh, he watching himself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I'm. I'm glad. I look beautiful. Look at that. Look at my hair. <laughs> um, Did you know that that oh hair no. is not a comb over? Oh, just what? What? Seriously? No. Did you know that his uh-huh. hair is not a comb over? He's not going George. bald. He just likes it that way. George, really? I'm just gonna call you Squirrel from now on. I know. <laughs> Squirrel. I'm sorry. Yes, his, it's not a comb over. What is it? It's just he likes it that way. Oh. So it looks like a classic Kobofer, but they've actually shown photographs of him. It's like, yeah, he's got a widow's peak, but wow. Hey, look, the more you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we have John on today because of this article here. Uh, it's IATSE and Infocom kind of coming together. So what it is is, is IATSE and Infocom, uh, IATSE has gotten, they've got prepaid access for their IA members to take classes um, for examination and other uh, certifications and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't want to say that, that IATSE and Infocom are at odds by any stretch of the imagination, but they're two separate industries. Is that fair to say, John? Uh, actually, I would disagree because okay. the, the traditional, like I'm a member of Local One here in New York, uh, and we have members that do, uh, you know, that do, high-end video projection and things like that. So we don't really address the sort of consumer or uh, home uh, market, but certainly, and there's in fact, even in, um, there's whole locals of the IA that only do AV stuff. So they're, they're both together. So it's not the traditional, uh, necessarily the traditional sort of uh, standard depiction of a stage hand, but definitely the state, uh, the IA itself, which also covers wardrobe people and ticket booth and all kinds of things that are, are all related to the industry. But, uh, yeah, I think that we do do a lot of AV. Maybe that's where I was going with that because you, because of the various other aspects of IA that with, with Infocom, it's like, you know, th- th- that is what they do. That, you know, it's, it's the techs, right. it's the programmers and stuff like that. It's not just, you know, the, the customers and stuff like that. So George, is this a good thing with, with us coming together with, with IA? Well, I mean, I work in the industry where we, we work closely with IA. So, yes, any knowledge and any kind of further education is great. Um, you know, John, I, what was the training like prior to this? I mean, was it just union-based? Was it manufacturer-based? I know that Sharf Weisberg used to do some events at the Brooklyn Tech, right, to, to, treat, uh, to teach uh, IA guys some, some technology stuff. Well, it's been it's pretty fragmented. The local one that, that I'm a member of uh, does its own training. 
uh, different locals can do different things. This particular one is coming out of what it's called in the the uh, IAB International, which is also they're based here in the city, but they're they actually represent uh, all of the United States and Canada together. Um, so this is, seems to be being coordinated by the national office, and it, I think it's just happened. So we'll kind of have to see how it trickles down. But I think overall it's really good because between this and I would I helped to write one of the certification exams for. Uh, uh, what used to be ESTA, it's now Plaza, the ETCP. Um, in the 25 years or so I've been in the business, we've gone from ah, just, yeah, that'll work to really getting serious about this stuff with certifications. And that's because partly because we're working for bigger employers now. You have Disney and Cablevision and people like that. Um, but overall, I think it's good. I think the more knowledge is out there and the more, um, you know, somebody can get something that's, that means something nationally, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I know back in the, my first iteration here at the, the staging company, when we worked on Broadway, some of the electricians, you know, they put me with me when I was doing programming for this automation system for the slides. And I taught them, and they were eager to learn, but there was no other place for them to learn it. Exactly. In fact, I got offered to be brought into the union. I guess the shop steward was like, you know, what, what, you know, here's how you would do it. I couldn't do it, one, because I couldn't do the hours anymore, and they wanted me to start as a, well, I forget what the lowest level was, apprentice or something, where yep. I would be taking a pay cut at that point. Yeah. And it would take me five years to make it back. It would be much better, I think, over the long term. But it, it was one of those things where, like, you guys really—that's when you know some of the companies started saying, "Hey, we'll help teach. We'll, we're a shop, so we'll help teach." But yeah, this more cohesive, a more centralized um, education system for the IA is a great, great thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of education, we have another story about that. Stanford this past semester, um, they basically opened up a bunch of their classes for free. Uh, what it was is a bunch of, of the guys got together and said, hey, let's let's kind of open it up to the world. They let anybody that wanted to attend online, they did the quizzes, they asked questions, and they could even get grades all for free. Now, we have a, a new uh, show on, on the AV Nation network called uh, Ed, Ed Tech, and one of the guys on there, Matthew Silverman, actually did this, was, was a part of this. And he said it was cool. cool. It, was, it was a good experience. You know, it was free. It was online. However, a, a guy at Stanford, a student at Stanford, actually wrote a blog post slamming this idea and slamming this whole turning the whole classroom around thing, saying, look, you know, I pay good money to go to Stanford. I want a seat in a classroom, you know. And, and so, George, we'll, we'll start with you on this. Is, this. is this kind of like the Motion Picture Association, you know, that industry? Is this kind of like the education industry's growing pains with the internet and with internet-based education. You know, yeah, I, get, you know, I think so. Uh, I, I'm torn on it because I, I get that message. I get that, hey, I went and I want the one-on-one. And I think for such high-level stuff that Stanford was doing, and I think MIT was playing with the idea for mm-hmm. a while. Um, well, M- MIT actually has an entire open curriculum. I don't think you get right. grades, but all their course materials are open. Right, I think right. for I think every NPR- class, actually. Right. Didn't NPR do a thing on that, I think, a couple of weeks ago? Well, and you've got places like ago. iTunes University where all of these lectures are on. You yeah. don't get grades, but you can watch them. Right. And, and I think that's the difference. Like, if you want real grades for some kind of institution like Stanford, uh, the, the physical building being there, I agree. There's certain things you can't learn unless you're there in the pl- – I mean, look, you can't do a, you know, an autopsy <laughs> remotely. Um, <laughs> oh, give them you know, time, so, George. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, yes, you could, but, you know. Hear me out on that. You know, there's things you cannot do unless you're in the classroom, and that level of education should take place at such an institution while you're there. 
But educating the masses, and the point they made in one of these radio shows I was listening to about it was, you know, there's people in certain remote parts of the country or co- parts of different continents that aren't getting to that class, but the education is needed. You're not going to grow your business, your your community and your and your communities without education. Um, you know, the United States has a severe problem with technical knowledge, technical education, and degrees. We're, we're slipping. And people aren't going to college, or if they are, they're only going for a little while. If this is an alternative to increase the education and the knowledge of, of, of a citizenry, it's the best thing. And you're going to have to deal with the fact that, yes, it's not just a special institution for you only anymore. Yeah. But, but I would say Stanford should start worrying about it when their applications start declining, and I have a feeling that's not happening. No, I don't either. I th- <laughs> yeah, I think this is just, I think it's brilliant marketing. Here we are talking about Stanford and how great they are. It's just more br- brilliant marketing for them. Um, and I think, you know, the, the key part is they're giving away all this knowledge and information, which is fantastic. Uh, I don't know how they're grading 100,000 students. I mean, there has to be automated yeah. quizzes and stuff. You're not getting any one-on-one with a professor, uh, which is what you pay for. And I think that the, you know, the focus and the access is that's never going to go away. When I started uh, teaching about 1999, I think, uh, there was another one of these online universities going to replace everything, boom. Um, you know, that's when there's uh, like Phoenix and some of those mm-hmm. for-profit colleges start. And that's fine. Those, uh, we, we teach some stuff online, not so much in my department. Uh, I would say why in a minute. But the, um, uh, you know, the, it's great for certain people in certain situations that can't get to the college or they have uh, busy family obligations or whatever, but they have to be really motivated to do that. And I've taken like, I took an online meteorology class from Penn State, uh, which is a fascinating experience. But always felt it was always to me a little bit frustrating uh, in a, a bunch of ways. But anyway, the when I first started, we were looking at grants and stuff to develop this course material because that is an enormous amount of work uh, to get this stuff to the point where it can can exist online and be um, you know without a lot of support and stuff. It's very one thing to sort of toss together a lecture and uh, or whatever and put that up, but to have something that's really you know interactive and, and where people can really learn is a giant amount of work. And we ended up, uh, or I would say I ended up, went through this whole thing. And in the end, I just realized a lot of the stuff that, that we teach is, is by its nature is hands-on and just doesn't really translate very well to that kind of online thing. There are certainly things that do. And I think talking about programming and stuff like that, you're sitting in front of a computer anyway, then that's a great application for it. Yeah. But I think it's nothing to worry about. I think it's I think it's the thing that's great. I think the more information that's out there, you have a hundred thousand people learning about you know cool stuff. That's great. And John, the the hundred thousand tests, those are graded by graduate assistants. So yeah, that's right. I, I say that as a GA. So um, you listen to. But I think you're, huh? you're grading a couple hundred, not a hundred. Yeah, no, yeah. That. If uh, they hired grad students, that would be. I, I don't think that there's enough. You could hire enough for that. No. Uh, you listen to AV Week with John Huntington from City Tech and George Tucker from uh, from World Stage. Uh, real quickly, a couple more articles. Uh, one comes from Hidden Wires. It's a it's a UK uh, publication, and they talk about the Cedia Expo in China. Uh, this this is late last year, but my thing is, and, and this guy goes on to say, is basically his his whole synopsis of this thing is that China is the next big market for AV. And George, we'll start with you. Is this something? Is China something that uh, is, is that an area where we need to, where manufacturers need to start start focusing, and maybe even integrators need to start partnering with people, like partnering with local guys 
uh, to get you know talented people, qualified people, trained uh, uh, AV techs over there to help you know grow this market. Uh, yes, duh. It's been <laughs> happening for a while, hasn't it? I yeah. mean, and that's not at you, but. Um, even some of the manufacturers I've worked for in the past were sending lots of stuff over there. They have whole divisions that are over there. Um, what was the big fracas that happened with uh, was it GE's X-Ray? People are claiming that they were sending the entire production of X-Ray machines over there. But no, they were going there to say, we're going to produce in China for China. It's a growing market. There's a billion people over there. <laughs> exactly. That's a market. I mean, I don't know about your math, but <laughs> that's a market. And as they get richer, and a lot of um, news agencies have done stories about this, as a middle class is developing in China, they want some nicer things. They're still living in very small spaces as we are sort of going from big to small. But they want some of the nicer stuff. They want that controllable thermostat. They do want the fancy remote for the TV and the big TV. Of course, it's a huge market. Um, I know that manufacturers like Crestron AMX have gone over to the, the, the Asian expos back in the 80s. So that market is ready to burst, and it's, you know, it's one place to be. You have to protect yourself because I'm sure that we all know of the problems with counterfeiting and, uh, and remanufacturing. Uh, and one of the places I worked for actually got a unit back from a Asian client saying, please fix. We couldn't fix it. We didn't know why. Guess what? We found that they copied the board down to the chip numbers silkscreened on it. Wow. And manufactured it themselves. But there is a huge market there regardless. And I would say just look at, look at Macau, you know, which is uh, if there's the number of massive shows over there. Uh, with with massive amounts of AV technology, it's just unbelievable. But for the most part, so far, they've been for a lot of the expertise, they've been hiring people from the West. So uh, again, it's I think it's all good. Well, and we'll we'll take that <laughs> and, and go into our our last story, and that is on the Pirate Bay. Now you can, which if you don't know Pirate Bay, Pirate Bay is one of the most infamous piracy sites online. I'm not going to give you the the. The, uh, the website, but it is a, a file-sharing uh, site, you can download what they're calling visibles, and I think I'm, I'm saying that right. But, John, this is something where you can go on, and if you have a 3D printer, which those do exist, or some sort of mock-up uh, technology, you can take this file and recreate a physical object. So yeah. you could take, you know an iPod and if you had all of the you know if you had the blueprints for it you could recreate it down to like George said the chip number well I think that that's a long way off because the thing they're actually the most popular 3D printer that, that I'm aware of right now is the MakerBot which is actually made here in Brooklyn and the uh, and I've been over there I know the guys over there um, they just came out with a new model that, that we have one at school. We're actually in the process of assembling it. It takes about 25 hours to put it together. Um, we have a couple of them on the way. But, uh, yeah, I think it's really cool because uh, there's nothing up there that you couldn't just get with a laser scanner and, and just scan some object. Uh, in fact, I saw a really amazing thing. This uh, comedian, this guy, Jeff Dunham. I'm sorry, not comedian. Uh, well, comedian and ventriloquist, Jeff mm -hmm. Dunham. Yeah. Um, he has a 3D printer. He has a pretty... A very high end one and a scanner, and that's how he makes uh, ventriloquist dummies now. Really? Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. And if it's, I tried actually to put something on my blog about that, but I couldn't find a clean reference. So if you Google it, there's like <laughs> that is one, true. 
Well, I didn't even mean it that way. But I meant the if you Google it, you'll find one press release from the 3D printer company, but there's not. I saw it on a TV show. That, I thought uh, you were saying that you couldn't find a clean clip from from. Jeff oh yeah, that, I, I don't mind putting that up. Yeah. But yeah, these uh, at this point, it's it's really no threat to anything. Uh, I think, um, and uh, MakerBot is a pretty interesting company because they are all their stuff. Uh, they have a very open source model that. Uh, you know, the MakerBot name is trademarked and stuff like that. But if you make your own, they're, they're not going to come sue you because uh, they feel like they offer, you know, good enough service and stuff for that. But basically all the 3D printers are now, they, there's several different technologies, but these inexpensive ones mostly just melt uh, plastic, uh, sort, of a pla- sort of like big oversized colored uh, fishing line. Mm. And it just sort of heats it up and dabbles it on these points. And they're kind of crude, like the surface that comes out of them is a little bit rough. I mean, there are super high-end prototyping. I think Crestron, I used to have those when George was up there, um, that yes, use a layer and a pool of resin and stuff like that. But those are like $100,000, $200,000. These things are like uh, grand. I think the new one's 2000 bucks, even assembled, which is good. Um, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think there's a lot of hype on that page about things that you're – they were talking about printing a meal and stuff, and I think until we're printing at the atomic level, that ain't happening. So. Hmm. But to print a plastic thing, and there have actually been, uh, there was a case, and I'd have to go find it, but like the knob of somebody's stove broke, and they, you know, GE or whoever wanted $15 for it because it's, you know, they have to stock it and all that stuff. Uh, so they just scanned it and made another one, and uh, they got in trouble for that. So I think they put, then they put the designs online or something. But I mean, I know that's not their, they're not really in the market of making knobs, and that market is already so beaten down anyway by all the, you know, uh, people making 50 cents a day assembling this stuff. Uh, I don't see as much of a threat. It's really cool stuff, though. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, we talked a lot about it on the uh, DIY show uh, with, with some some guests who actually do who do this stuff. And it is, like John said, even with the high-end stuff, it's got a very strange finish to it, and it's not durable, not yet. And there are supposedly ways of making it more durable, but it's still not like the finished product that we buy in the store. How far away is that? I don't know, maybe 30 years, 40 years when you start to get, or maybe less than that, but I'm going to be over, over, over the top there. But you're still well, not yeah. going to be able to buy your car part and replace it with that, not, not in the near future, not at least in my kid's lifetime. But well, the potential for doing some cool stuff is there. Yeah, I'll get, uh, I'll get apocalyptic on you. When, when apocalyptic? Uh, apocalyptic on you. When, when is it when these guys are, star- or when these devices are going to make the repair parts for itself? <laughs> and yeah. become like the Matrix computers. Okay. Depends on the list if you believe Ray, <laughs> if you believe Ray Kurzweil or not. That's the yeah. Hint. Well, you know, I was you know, I was thinking like well, William Gibson, right? William Gibson novels, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I think we we uh, I don't see that any of that in in my lifetime. So I've All been right. wrong before. On that happy note, we're going to go ahead. Yeah, Terminator. Uh, when does Skynet become active? Oh, yeah, Skynet comes online. <laughs> I think, didn't we miss when that? Was that? this year. Yeah, we, was, we already missed them. Well, and, uh, and the, the uh, what was it, the uh, Back to the Future date is coming up here in a couple That's of years. Right. So. All right, uh, that right there is John Huntington. John, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, he oh, is thanks for having me. controlgeek.net. He's also the professor of entertainment technology at City Tech in New York and the author of control systems for live entertainment. Anything you want to, to plug or, or pimp, sir? No, I think you just did it very well. Okay. So thank you. <laughs> well, you know what? There's our first time for everything, John. Uh, <laughs> George Tucker, the Entertain engineering coordinator for World Stage. 
Tucker2s.typebad.com. Is that right? Yep. Oh, yep. Look at that. And he's also at Tucker2s on uh, on Twitter. Uh, but he's also one of my right hand guys and, and a, a great uh, a great producer for this network. He's got the DIY show, the social. If you haven't checked this out, it's called the AV Social. Uh, go to our our, our, our website, uh, ravepubs dot com forward slash AV Nation. Great, great inaugural show, George. Go ahead and kind of tell people give us give give them a synopsis of what AV Social is. Well, AV Social is a show for AV installers, uh, uh, business owners, and their folks who are trying to convince them to get onto social media or to do better at it. Uh, it involves a bunch of um, AV guys, all like us, doing uh, social media and how we got together to do it, um, as well as some of the professional marketing people who work in the AV world to talk about the tools, tips, and techniques and how to do it better and just some good inspiration. Um, the first show has a bunch of people like Scott Moody, Moody from Marketing Matters, uh, Dawn Mead that was on, that's on the show uh, uh, often, uh, Matt Scott from Omega Video Audio Video, and a guest that we had come on, uh, Cindy Gallup, who is IfWeRanTheWorld.com, among other things, who was just a remarkable uh, person to speak with about social media, and she kept us all in um, odd silence at times and actively typing on Twitter about how much we enjoy just listening to her <laughs> and really sort of debating whether or not we should just go, go with it. We're not going to talk anymore. I want to listen to you. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was a lot of fun to have her on. And there's a story about Cindy Gallup and why she came on the show that is really important. A lot of AV guys, and they should listen about it. So that is uh, it's our website, uh, ravepubs.com forward slash AV Nation. Uh, if you notice the Rave Pubs part, that's where we are now. They, we've uh, partnered with Rave Publications, Gary Kay and the folks, and so they've made some very pretty, very nice interactive sites for us. Ravepubs.com forward slash AV Nation. Go there, check out the AV Social, check out DIY, oh, EdTech, Howcast, and of course this show as well. So uh, thanks so much for listening. That's all the time we have for AV Week. Thank you.